This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the John Oakley Show podcast for Tuesday, September 29th, 2020. If absence makes the heart grow fonder, then what does prolonged exposure do? For better or worse, the folks over at Ashley Madison have developed a pretty clear picture. You wouldn't think that a registered sex offender would be allowed to change their name, but they can. And we speak to an MPP who's working to change this. Ransomware can wreak havoc on your life when hackers take your personal data hostage. But what happens when hospitals fall into the crosshairs and the lives of patients hang in the balance? All of this starts now. On the matter of uh, sex and intimacy during lockdown, it seems like it's taking a hit. And why would that be? Well, let's find out from somebody who's in the business, kind of, sort of. The Chief Strategy Officer for Ashley Madison, Paul Keeble, is with us on the line. Paul, good afternoon. Welcome to The Oakley Show. Thanks for having me back on again, John. So, Paul, uh, physical intimacy taking a hit during COVID-19? Absolutely. What we've been finding over the course of the past six to seven months is that people's relationships have been dramatically impacted by the, the various lockdowns that we've seen around the world. And how people are dealing with it has become a little bit interesting. Well, all right, let's flesh that out a little more fully. Again, no pun intended, but uh, I mean, is it uh, lack of opportunity, uh, fear of uh, spread, so to speak, uh, or is it somehow intimacy, the interest in it has waned uh, for whatever reason, I mean, that may exist out there? How do you assess it, all these different facets? Well, there's this idea that familiarity can breed contempt, and we've been locked down, if not completely isolated from the outside world, alone with our spouses and partners over the past few months. And the number one complaint that our members have indicated to us is not so much that they're not having intimacy, though that is certainly a key aspect of it, to it, but that their spouse hasn't initiated it. And what we know about people is that there's a massive desire to be wanted inside a relationship. The idea of being alone inside a marriage is a very frightening concept, and I think that's what a lot of our members are dealing with. And so they're clearly coming to us to find an outlet, uh, someone, you know, a partner in crime, or just somebody to talk to who's in a similar situation. But if you're in lockdown and with your spouse, I get a familiarity can breed contempt by the same token. It can reframe a relationship and you grow closer. Is that possible? Sure. And again, you know, we only speak to a, a small constituency of relationships around the world, though we've seen reports that affairs happen in anywhere from 20 to 80 percent of of marriages. There's no good data to show you really how, how widespread it totally is. Though, as a company, we've had almost 70 million members join, you know, since we launched. And, you know, at the beginning of this uh, uh, pandemic, we had about 15,000 people joining a day. We're now up to more than 21,000 people joining a day. So clearly, you know, people are not necessarily growing closer over this time frame, and they're seeking solutions for that problem. All right. And so uh, having an affair, is that the solution? I mean, or is that just, and, but when I say solution, it may just mm-hmm. be uh, a natural outcropping of a desire for closeness and uh, maybe not finding it on the home front. 
you know, because I get in trouble invariably, uh, people misunderstand that we're condoning this practice. Uh, that's not my business. I just want to understand, you know, how people's lives are being lived in a certain let's say, dimension of the human condition. So uh, what is it then? I mean, are people uh, seeking that intimacy outside of their own relationship uh, because of the lockdown? Does that make sense? Well, I think the lockdown didn't cause it, but it exposed it. So if you had any fractures within your relationship prior to the lockdown, you often were able to overcome them through a variety of solutions. So you socialized outside of the house with friends. So maybe you joined a sports team, you know, you joined a variety of different social clubs. You went out for dinners with a, a, a broader social group. A lot of those outlets have been removed from your world, and now you're solely looking to your spouse to be everything in your life, your financial partner, your intimate partner, your friend partner, and that's a big role to take for someone who may not have played that role in 10, 15, 20 years. And so the pandemic is, is, is expanding the cracks in people's relationships. And what our service does is help these people find a solution, maybe long-term, maybe short-term, instead of looking for what we often refer to as the nuclear option, going to divorce. Because 95% of our, of our members respond in these surveys that divorce wasn't what they were looking for. They still very much love their partner and their spouse. They just weren't getting that one aspect that they needed to continue a fulfilling life. And so we're offering that to help decrease the potential for divorce across the country, if not the globe. Paul Keebles with us, Chief Strategy Officer for Ashley Madison. By the way, uh, do we have any idea what the divorce rate stats are during this COVID-19, the last six or seven months? Have they spiked, gone down? Any idea? So I see reports around the world that they've started to increase in a number of different uh, places. China was obviously the first country that said uh, started to see a significant increase back in May when some of their lockdown uh, procedures were actually being uh, lifted because they had gone through the phase one a little earlier than everybody else. And we started to see some reports in Canada as well that the increased uh, calls to divorce uh, lawyers have started to uh, come up. The other thing I'm curious about, I mean, uh, when it comes men versus women, uh, are their desires pretty much the same or is there a disparity as far as that's concerned? Actually, there's a pretty big uh, difference in terms of why uh, men and women cheat. So we've actually done research with uh, Dr. Alicia Walker out of the University of Missouri, and she did two studies, one on the female members of Ashley Medicine, one on the male. Her study on men is actually coming out this fall in a new book. And what's interesting about that is that the men chose to join Ashley Madison for emotional validation, very much around the idea that they need to be wanted, they need to be desired, and that aspect of that relationship either wasn't in uh, with their primary relationship or, or it ceased to exist. So they were no longer being told that they were important to their spouse, whereas women, uh, in her first study, they were doing it solely for physical reasons. 80 to 80% of the members said that they were in an orgasmless marriage. And that aspect was not something they were willing to live without. And so they were choosing to outsource their, their intimate needs via Ash and Addison. And so while the outcomes might be very similar in terms of a physical relationship, the reasons driving them were very, very different and quite the opposite of what most people believe around the men and female cheating. How does that work in a demographic breakdown age-wise? I mean, uh, are you seeing more uh, younger women or, uh, I mean, what are the cohorts? So typically our, our members are slightly older in terms of, you know, they've lived a life, so closer to mid-40s. So women are around 38 to 40, men are around 42 to 44 in terms of when they first sign up to Ashley Madison. So we haven't seen a big shift in that yet because, you know, I think from the beginning of our of our inception back in 2002, it's slightly gotten older, but that 
goes along with the fact we've seen people getting married slightly older. So it takes a bit of time to discover those fractures in a relationship and to start to seek outside support via uh, an affair or uh, other activities. Paul, how do you deal with the competition of dating apps? Uh, We're actually a boom to most traditional dating apps because we were created based on the idea that in 2002, when we launched, majority of online dating sites were plagued with married people pretending to be single. We saw reports of up to 30% of sites like eHarmony Match were actually married people pretending to be single. So what we're doing is a service to those other sites, pulling off, hopefully, anybody who's looking to have an affair and not pretending to be something they're not, whereas they can come to our platform and be a little bit more honest and truthful, which I know sounds odd given the business that we're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, there's the height of irony. Uh, but h- how do you screen for misrepresentation? So depends on how you're, you're phrasing that or, or thinking about it. So our site is open to everybody. Obviously, we market to a very specific demographic, people who are in relationships looking to have an affair. But at the core of our product is discretion. And that bright light of discretion attracts a lot of different people. So you might be in an open relationship. You might be single uh, and just not looking to have a, a traditional relationship because of other aspects of your life. And so we're attractive for a lot of different reasons. Whereas people who come to our site for fraudulent reasons, we have really great uh, AI technology and customer service support that detect the vast majority of fa- uh, fake accounts within eight seconds. I think more than 80% of our accounts are, are, are frauded out, uh, the ones that are, you know, shouldn't be on the site within eight seconds, and then we test the rest pretty quickly thereafter. So we have a robust system in place to manage anybody who's on the site looking to do activities that are not within what our community is seeking. AI technology, it's almost like you guys are ahead of the curve when it comes to contact tracing. Uh, How do you screen (laughs) through AI technology? I'm kind of curious. I mean, is there an invasion of privacy that we need to know about? Uh, Maybe breaching confidentiality rules? Uh, Be specific. How does that work? So to be specific, it's about people, you know, coming from certain IPs that obviously showcase uh, a historical pattern of fraudulent activities, people who, you know, are putting up messages to members that say, you know, come find me on this other website. They're clearly, you know, indicative of poor behavior. And this is true. This is something that happens in every single dating site. So it's not specific to Ashley Madison. You know, you go to Tinder, you go to eHarmony, people sign up for, for, you know, the wrong reasons. And all of us in the dating industry manage those in a, in a very coordinated effort. Okay. Uh, they sign up for all of the wrong reasons. <laughs> I got it. Exactly. Uh, well, it's an interesting uh, case study on, again, the human condition. This particular aspect of it, Ashley Madison, uh, has been, I guess, facilitating affairs since 2002. Paul Keeble, their chief strategy officer. Uh, thanks for giving us the update, Paul. Uh, it's interesting, all the things that uh, COVID-19 hath wrought, for better, for worse, and uh, that's what we're trying to do, just to pour through the list here. And yours was the, the next name on the list. Thanks a lot for your time this afternoon. Appreciate it, John. Talk to you again soon. These uh, pervs, sex offenders, who've been changing their names and going on about their evil pursuits. Joining me on the line right now is Christina Mitas, a conservative MPP for Scarborough Centre, who hopes to close this particular loophole in the province of Ontario. Christina, good to have you on board with The Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Hi, John. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. So uh, you've got a private member's bill, as I understand it, before the legislature now, uh, which the intent is to uh, close this loophole, as I understand it. So tell me what it's all about in a nutshell. Sure, I'd be happy to. So uh, it's called the Change of Name Amendment Act, and uh, the purpose of this private member's bill is to ban registered sex offenders from having the legal means to change their name. 
And it closely mirrors uh, legislation that was successfully passed through the Alberta legislature by Minister Glubish and in Saskatchewan as well. All right. So uh, how come we haven't addressed this uh, beforehand? Or is there already something on the books that may be addressing this so uh, it would make your private members bill redundant? Uh, you know what? I was shocked to find out that we hadn't addressed it. So uh, when I heard about what was happening in Alberta, I immediately contacted the minister there and spoke with him the day after. And I was I was shocked. It's 2020 and the sex offenders are able to change their name. So it's not something that they can do very easily, but it is certainly possible for them. And that's that's a problem. We have to protect victims here. Oh, I understand. I mean, that would be obviously uh, the reasonable uh, impetus behind this. But I, you're telling me then, in effect, uh, somebody is on the sex offender registry and they change their name and uh, suddenly they can fly under the radar. Nobody picks it up and they can continue on with, again, these nefarious practices of downloading child porn or whatever the case may be. Well, certainly there, there's no provision within the Change of Name Act for registered sex offenders, nor is there a provision under Christopher's Law, which is our Ontario Sex Offenders Registry. So it is possible for them to do this. And while changes of name are registered in the Ontario Gazette, I don't think that your everyday Ontarian uh, looks into that and reads and looks at what their name was prior. So it's certainly a huge issue. And it also would go hand in hand with registries becoming more accessible and more transparent to the public rather than being available only for police use. So, Christina, when you say it's a huge issue, uh, are there a couple of, for instances, you might cite by way of example that this is what's happened so far and this is why we need this law? I mean, certainly you can think of, you know, none other than Carla Hamoka, who uh, went to Quebec and uh, attempted to change her name there. And she was volunteering at an elementary school in Quebec and parents were shocked to find out that that is a woman that was having access to their elementary age children. Afterwards, So if someone like Carla Hamoka can go and live in anonymity, we have a huge problem. And they don't have to provide any details to the sex offender registration office or anything like that, that they've changed their names? There's no onus or burden or responsibility on them? We have uh, we have some we have provincial sex offender registries, but then have a national sex offender registry that is not accessible to the public. It was created in 2004, with a number of changes since then. But again, we as public are not able to access it. So the police, on a national level or provincial level, do what they can, but largely one hand is not talking to the other with interprovincial issues here. And that's why the minister in Alberta, as well, really drove this point home to me. While he was happy that these changes had taken place there. It's so incredibly important to ensure that this legislation passes in every province because someone can leave Ontario once we pass this year and go to Quebec, as an example, and attempt to change their name there and and do the same thing there. So we have to close this loophole and protect victims in every province and stand together as Canadians in order to make a real difference here. Well, amen to that. I mean, I'm just surprised this uh, blind spot has existed until now when you're seeking to address it or closing the loophole. So what's the name of your act and uh, what are the prospects? We know that certain... uh, Private members' bills don't tend to get passed, uh, but I can't see any resistance to this one. It seems so reasonable. I agree. The, it's called the Change of Name Amendment Act, and thus far there has not been any opposition from any of the other parties or independent members. I am very hopeful that this will be one of the, the few private members' bills that pass. As you say, not, not many do make it through committee, but I'm working very closely with members across the table and within our own party and with our House leader. It has now been referred to committee, and uh, I'm very hopeful that it will be passed and receive royal assent uh, by Christmas. 
Well, good on you. Uh, necessary to do. I don't think you'd get uh, an argument from too many people, but uh, continued success with this one, and we'll follow it as it makes its way through the various levels of the process. Uh, Christina Mitas, Conservative MPP for Scarborough Centre, thanks for weighing in this afternoon and giving us a heads up on this one. Thank you so much, and thank you for showcasing this. It means a lot. The scary story, the prospects of which uh, we're still not clear on. Let's find out. A major hospital chain in the U.S. been hit by what appears to be one of the largest medical cyber attacks in that nation's history. The computer systems for Universal Health Services, more than 400 locations, began to fall over the weekend. And uh, where they're at right now, well, let's get a status report. Joining us on the line, Thomas Holt, professor in the School of Criminal Justice at Michigan and an expert in cybercrime, cybersecurity, and identity theft. Professor Holt, good to have you on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Thank you for having me. So about this hospital chain, Universal Health Services, uh, what is this about? What's going on here with the breaching of their, their systems, their computers? Well, they're being very cagey about what happened, but evidence so far suggests it appears to be ransomware that has taken down certain parts of the network, which limits the amount of computerized data that the nurses and doctors have access to. So how would that work then? I mean, uh, the shutdown, the ransomware, we're kind of familiar. Uh, Somebody gets into the system and I guess holds the gun to your head, figuratively speaking, either pay out or they're going to collapse the whole thing. Is that essentially what's going on here? So far, that seems to be the case, yes. It's unclear what part of their network may have been affected by ransomware, but it tends to move laterally across an organization. And so wherever it might have been, if it's on, say, a database maintaining sensitive information or records management, that could be disastrous. Well, this Universal Health Services operation has got more than 400 locations. It's a pretty big going concern. Uh, How could they be vulnerable? Uh, Perhaps I'm naive in the sense uh, why hackers, A, would target them, and how could they be vulnerable, I would think, with so much sensitive information and on a need-to-access basis? uh, Wouldn't they be impregnable to a large extent? That's the biggest problem. So every computer system can be hacked. It's really a question of when and how. So a creative hacker will find inroads to compromise a system, and they tend, particularly ransomware guys, tend to target systems that they know are going to want to pay rather than be unable to use their resources. So hospitals, schools, um, in some cases power companies have become key targets because those are the entities that are going to pay as soon as possible to get access to their files and system resources. I've even heard tell of smaller municipalities off the beaten path and the ransomware being sought is only in the tens of thousands, maybe not more than 10 grand. And I guess the the little community decides better pay out. We don't have the wherewithal, the resources to address this probably cost us more than that. Uh, Is that a fairly common approach for some of maybe uh, the smaller scale hackers, the way they're working it? Just, you know, target the small fish. But if you get enough of them in time, you're still making out okay. Yes, exactly. For a long time, the argument was just pay the ransom. It's cheaper, it's easier, and then investigation as possible afterward. But that is starting to change a little bit. And so depending on incidents like this where it's targeting such a huge potential base of people, the argument might be pay the ransom. It may be not. I I can't tell exactly. But yeah, the, the modus operandi for most ransomware folks for a long time was go small, but they started ratcheting up as they realized, you know, these small people are only going to pay so much. Uh, An entire hospital chain, maybe they'll pay a couple hundred thousand. 
Again, Thomas Holt is with us. He's a prof in the School of Criminal Justice at Michigan, an expert in cybercrime, cybersecurity, and identity theft. Professor, I'm curious, I mean, a hospital, wouldn't they have uh, all of this data backed up some way, somehow, uh, so that ransomware couldn't really take advantage? Ideally, yes, but depending on how often they have backups made, they could be depending on data from two, three months ago. So it may not be as relevant as last week or yesterday. It'll depend on what systems were compromised and when. You heard tell of any situations where people did not pay the ransomware, what the uh, outcome was of that. In a hospital setting, uh, I'm guessing that could seriously compromise patient care, I guess, uh, at the end of the food chain, could it not? Yes. In fact, uh, there's an example from this morning, at least that was when I read this particular story, a a school district in Las Vegas, Nevada, in the United States, was hit with ransomware, and they decided not to pay, so the hackers dumped 320,000 student records online. So that's pretty bad. All right. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of this uh, breach of the Universal Health Services system, more than 400 locations. Would patient care be compromised? Could people potentially die because of this, uh, let's say the failure or inability to pay? Um, It's possible. I know in Germany earlier this year, in fact, a patient died as a result of ransomware, but it is difficult to know how exactly that death occurs as a function of the attack. So if patient records are compromised, then, or if they're in some way altered or damaged, that obviously has immediate impacts for patient care. If it's, uh, say, billing or other parts of the network that render it harder to do certain parts of the, of the medical job, it may have less impact on patient care, but long-term it could have impact on patient um, data security and uh, sensitivity of financial records and stuff like that. Yeah, in the universal case, they're also citing the fact physicians and nurses couldn't access labs, radiology, or cardiology reports, slow down treatment, and in some cases, uh, if you miss the critical care at the critical point, uh, then that's where the real uh, problems arise, the dilemma as far as that's concerned. Uh, I'm kind of curious because you said earlier, you know, anyone uh, operating a computer can be hacked. Uh, Are we getting more sophisticated? I mean, is it a case of cat and mouse with the people who are hacking and asking ransomware and things like that? How's that going? Absolutely. Hackers are extremely creative and they always look to the next iteration of how an attack can be successful. So you may be able to stop them using this tactic so they'll find an alternative to get around it. So it is very much a cat-and-mouse game or sort of a slow escalation of, it, of behavior over time. Now, typically, uh, who would these hackers be? Is that part of organized crime, or are they just uh, bad state actors? There was a story of the uh, health system, the national health system in the U.K., uh, being shut down in 2017, and the hackers were working for the North Korean government. Uh, I guess, you know, uh, it comes in different ways, shapes, and forms, but typically, uh, who would be these hackers? Mostly when we're thinking about something like ransomware, especially when they're targeting a specific type of resource consistently, mostly we associate this with financially motivated criminals or cyber criminals. There's not as solid evidence as we might want to suggest it's organized crime in the offline context, but these can be actors who are working loosely together online. Nation states do engage in ransomware attacks, but they're very infrequent, and the North Korean example you gave, going back to WannaCry, is really one of the few that we have, mostly with ransomware. Since it is about getting money from someone, it's less a nation state activity and more of just a financially motivated person type activity.
How are they discovered? I mean, uh, how do you track or trace who it may be? Uh, almost reverse engineering the hack, aren't you? Yep, exactly. In fact, with ransomware, there are kind of unique hallmarks around the, the malicious software itself that can give you a sense of who the attacker is. And if you see the same basic digital signature of the malicious software across different attacks, that makes it easier to begin to attribute the attack to a specific person or a group. And in the event you see them advertising services or saying we have this data for sale that may be linked to a prior event, that helps get a little closer to saying this is the people or the person responsible. And Professor, if you pay the ransomware, uh, who's to say they just won't uh, comply uh or won't come back at you again anyway? I mean, is it an honor system, so to speak? Kind of, yeah. The idea is that if you've paid the ransom once, ideally a smart system operator or cybersecurity professional within the organization will block that hole from being attacked again. So you limit your risk from that type of attack. Um, Additionally, if you're the attacker and you say, sure, if you pay us, we'll make sure you get access to all your data back, and you get paid, and then you don't provide that information, that just suggests to the next uh, victim, pay or don't pay, the outcome is going to be the same. So it's sort of dependent on the attacker making good on their end, as well as you making good on your end as the victim to pay. Because if you pay and nothing happens, nobody else is going to pay. Right, provided they know uh, the outcome in the first instance. I mean, yeah. this is really uh, the shadowy world uh, that's inhabited by these cyber criminals, uh, the hackers demanding ransomware. Great to have this enlightenment, Professor Holt. Appreciate your time this afternoon. Stay well. My pleasure. Thank you, you too. Thank you. Thomas Holt, professor in the School of Criminal Justice at Michigan, an expert in cybercrime, cybersecurity, and identity theft. This has been the Oakley Show podcast for Tuesday, September 29, 2020. You can listen live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.